1: For centuries, the reputation of Queen Catherine Parr, Henry VIII's sixth wife, was, as today's guest has put it, "...little more than a royal nursemaid to her ailing husband, a pious, plain-faced prude who preached Protestantism and was kind to Henry's children." Such a characterisation is wildly inaccurate, and entirely fails to capture the life of this active, strong-willed, and outspoken queen, whose story contains personal peril, clandestine romance, war, political intrigue, and jealous husbands. She was a great patron of the arts and the Reformation, Regent General during Henry VIII's time in France, and the first Queen of England to write and publish her own books, as well as the first English woman to publish a work of prose in the 16th century. Today's podcast will make you think again about this vital and fascinating woman. To rehabilitate Catherine Parr, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Susan E. James. Dr. James is the author of two biographies of Catherine Parr, Catherine Parr, The Making of a Queen, and Catherine Parr, Henry VIII's Last Love. She's also published on The Feminine Dynamic in English Art, and Women's Voices in Tudor Wills, amongst other things, and those are both fascinating subjects I hope we might be able to come back to on the podcast one day. But today our subject is Henry VIII's Last Queen, and her tumultuous, extraordinary, and ultimately tragic life. Dr. James, it is a great pleasure to see you and to have a chance to talk about this wonderful woman. The picture that we are often given of Catherine Parr is that she's kind of written off as this dowdy widow who nursed Henry VIII in his dotage. In summary, why is that unfair? Why is it unfortunate?
0: Well, it's unfortunate because it's the complete opposite of what she actually was. This was a woman who went in one year from being an obscure Yorkshire housewife to the regent of England, and that's no mean feat, especially since she was not raised at court. She had no powerful family behind her. So she was an extraordinary
1: woman. So before we get stuck into how she was an extraordinary woman, let's talk about her name. Because it is from you that I have taken the lead in spelling her name differently to some other people do. Tell us about her first name, how you spell it, and where it came from.
0: Well, it probably came from her probable godmother, Catherine of Aragon, who her mother was a lady-in-waiting. And I spell it the way she spelled it, which was the trendy way to spell it. Catherine Howard spelled her name that way also. So this was the fashionable form of Catherine in the middle of the 16th century.
1: So for those who don't know, this is K-A-T-E-R-Y-N. Correct. Caterine, we might say,
0: perhaps. Yes. Well, Henry called her Kate, but she always spelled it Catherine.
1: And we know to start at the beginning that she was born in 1512, probably in August. Tell us about her parents. Her father, Sir Thomas
0: Parr, was the consummate courtier. He had been educated at Collie Weston in the home of Henry's grandmother, Margaret Beaufort. But he died when Catherine was five. Her mother was from a gentry family in Northamptonshire, and she was lady-in-waiting to Catherine of Aragon and part of Catherine of Aragon's inner circle. She was very devoted to her. And they were professional courtiers, basically.
1: And her mother, Maud, how much do you think she was an influence on Catherine? She
0: was the complete role model. Maud, very unusually for the period, never remarried. She was left pregnant with three children under the age of six when her husband died. And she lived 14 more years. And usually she would have remarried, but she didn't. She devoted herself to running the Par Estates. To educating her children, to arranging their marriages. So she was quite unusual for the time. And she laid down a pattern of a bi gendered household with a single mother, which Catherine flourished in that environment.
1: And actually, one of your works on Catherine Park explores the stories of Catherine's siblings as well, which are fascinating. Her siblings are very important to her throughout her life, so we ought to be introduced to them. Who were they?
0: Well, her younger sister Anne was in the household of all of Henry's queens. She served from maid-in-waiting up to lady-in-waiting after she got married. And so she knew all the power players at court. And about 1538, she married a soldier and one of the king's esquires, Will Herbert. And when Catherine became queen, they became the Earl and Countess of Pembroke. And Anne became a great patron of the arts, like Catherine was. William, who was her only brother and a year younger, was also a patron of the arts. He was a consummate courtier. He was married at 13 to the 10-year-old daughter and heir of the Earl of Essex, and Boucher. And they hated each other. (laughs) And ultimately, Anne eloped with her lover, and William was left high and dry because he had no legal wife and no legal heir. He was part of the triumvirate that put Jane Grey on the throne and ended up in the tower. And his estranged wife had to come and plead with Queen Mary to spare his life. He ended up as Queen Elizabeth's good uncle. So he had a very colorful life as well.
1: And in this early part of Catherine's life, what sort of education did Maud give her?
0: She had a very advanced education for the time. She and her siblings were educated on the plan that Sir Thomas More had laid out for his children. More's first wife, Jane, was a cousin of the Pars, and Cuthbert Tunstall, who was Bishop of Durham, he was also part of their educational plan. So she spoke French, Italian, She read Latin. She studied Spanish as queen. She was interested in mathematics, numismatics, medicine. She had a wide-ranging mind. She was quite brilliant. (laughs) I think you're right. I'm prejudiced.
1: So let's talk about her marital life before Henry VIII, because she was married twice before she married him, and not quite as young as her brother. But what do we know about her first marriage?
0: Well, her first marriage was to Edward Burrough, the heir of Sir Thomas Burrough of Gainsborough in Lincolnshire. She was 17 when she went north. The idea was that she would marry into a powerful northern family, which would help with the par influence in the north. Their holdings were in Kendall and in Westmoreland. And unfortunately, her father-in-law, Sir Thomas, was a belligerent bully who ran the household with an iron hand. His son was cowed by him, and this is just my opinion, but I think it's possible he may have been gay. And in that case, Catherine, whose sole duty was to produce an heir, would have had a hard time of it. But her mother came up to visit the year after they were married because... Catherine obviously had written to her, and she managed to break them out of Gainsborough, where they were living with the family, and set them up in an independent household in Curtin and Lindsay. But that only lasted two years, and then Edward died. So then she was left kind of high and dry, because after Edward's death, her mother was dead, her brother didn't have a household, because his wife had taken off, her sister still hadn't married, so she had nowhere to go. So she ended up, it appears, at Sizer Castle with her cousin, Catherine Neville, who had married into the Strickland family, and it probably through Catherine Neville that she met her second husband, John Neville, Lord Latimer. He was much older. He was sort of a querulous, hypochondriac. Nice guy, but not terribly strong. And she inherited two stepchildren, John and Margaret. John was 13 and Margaret was about eight. And John was a problem. As an adult, he ended up in prison for rape, murder, assault. But she tried to do her best by him. She arranged his marriage. She took his wife into her household. But with Margaret, Margaret became her daughter, really. She arranged Margaret's education. And when she became queen, she took Margaret to court with her. And Margaret became the go-between when Princess Elizabeth was in exile between Catherine and Elizabeth.
1: So our evidence of Catherine's maternal instincts starts in this marriage to John Neville, Lord Latimer. Now, he had been widowed already twice over himself when he married her. As you said, he was much older, twice her age, which I think is interesting in that it tells us a couple of things about the patterns of marriage and also the brevity of early modern marriages. But presumably, this was a step up in the world for her, marrying Lord Latimer.
0: Yeah, the irony of it was that for three generations, the male Pars had been trying to acquire a title. They'd worked very hard. And it was Catherine who was the first one to acquire a title, she became Lady Latimer. So that was a big deal at that moment.
1: I guess it must be during the marriage to Lord Latimer that we have what you think is her earliest known painted portrait, from the time of her betrothal, possibly.
0: The last article I wrote about this, I went really into detail about the
1: symbolism
0: in the portrait. And it's definitely a betrothal portrait. And what I think it was probably done about 1529, when she went north to marry Edward Burrow.
1: Okay, so it's earlier still.
0: Yeah, because her mother, being lady-in-waiting to Catherine of Aragon, had access to the court painters. And she was very close to Catherine, and here Catherine was going away for presumably the rest of her life. And I think that was when it was painted. And it would have been painted at court in London.
1: And it's interesting because this portrait has sometimes been be thought to be Catherine of Aragon. Why do you think it's Catherine Parr?
0: Well, it has historically been Catherine Parr. It was given to the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was Thomas Cranmer, who she worked very closely with during the time she was queen. It's unlikely that Cranmer would have hung Catherine of Aragon's portrait over his mantle when he had been instrumental in divorcing or annulling Catherine of Aragon from Henry, and the basis on which it was re-identified as Catherine of Aragon was the size, the background, and the costuming. Well, if it was done in 1529, before Catherine Parr went north to Lincolnshire, the size is not unusual. The background is what Flemish and English art was then. None of it says Catherine of Aragon, and a lot of it says Catherine Parr.
1: So, dipped back to before her marriage to Edward Borough, fast-forwarding back into her marriage to Lord Latimer then, by 1536, the family are living at Snape Castle. And there is this sort of dramatic moment, or moments, in fact, during the Great Northern Rebellion known as the Pilgrimage of Grace. What happened?
0: It was horrible. It was probably one of the greatest traumas in Catherine's life. The North, which was very conservative, very Catholic, rose against the dissolution of the monasteries and the break with Rome. There were roaming bands of rebels all over the North, and they came to Snape Castle, and they kidnapped Lord Latimer and took him away and tried to get him to join them in the rebellion because he was very conservative also. Well, he wasn't too eager to join them, he didn't want to die so he was trying to negotiate with them in the name of the king well he was with the rebels so as far as henry was concerned he was a traitor he managed to escape he tried to go to london to explain why he wasn't a rebel and the mob figuring that he was now betraying their cause storm snape again they held catherine and the children hostage for weeks they ransacked the castle. Heaven knows what happened during those weeks, but the events were so traumatic that when the rebellion was finally put down, I'm sure it was Catherine who insisted that they go south where her family was, and she never went to the north again. It must have been just horrific.
1: Yes, one can totally understand that she wanted to go south after that, and I suppose the fact that we have connections through her family members to courtly society was crucial in moving to London?
0: Absolutely. Both her brother and sister were at court, and her brother had been raised in the household of the Duke of Richmond, Henry's illegitimate son, and he was a close friend of the Earl of Surrey. So they knew people at court. And from what I gather from the evidence, I believe that she probably joined Princess Mary's household briefly because she knew Mary from a child and it would have been very logical for her to try and get a position in Mary's household because Latimer wasn't going to last very long. His health was not good.
1: So Catherine could see that she needed to make some provision for herself in the future potentially. So I suppose there's an interesting gap between 1536 and Latimer's death. We've got maybe six, seven years between these incidents. But as you say, Latimer was sickly and Catherine did have to be his nursemaid for at least three months before he died.
0: Yeah, that's true. She was very interested in medicine when she became queen. There are records in her chamber accounts about Herb gardens that she planted in Chelsea, Greenwich. She was into medicinals and herbals. It may have come from a natural interest, but also from necessity because Latimer was sick and Henry was quite cruel. He kept making Latimer go north to all these assizes and things. So that couldn't have been very good for his health either.
1: Henry VIII cruel. Who would have thought it? Yeah,
0: I know. Shocking, shocking.
1: And it's probably around the time that Latimer was dying and also that perhaps she was serving in Princess Mary's household that Catherine came to the attention of one man and another man came to her attention. Henry VIII seems to have been determined to marry her at the same time as she was falling in love with Sir Thomas Seymour. So tell us about Sir Thomas Seymour.
0: Well, he was a very close friend of her brother's, which is probably how she met him. Seymour has been undervalued by history, in my opinion. He was the Errol Flynn of the court. He was charming. He was handsome. He had a magnificent singing voice. But he was also a man of action. He was Admiral of the Navy. He captained his own warship. And, you know, Queen Elizabeth has been given credit for the modern establishment of the British Navy, but really the roots go back to Seymour. He was very active in arranging warships and working on naval affairs. But I would think probably half the women at court were in love with him at one point, And he made the most of it.
1: <laughs> but meanwhile, Catherine had come to Henry VIII's attention somehow.
0: Well, this is the thing. This is one reason why I think she was in Mary's household, was the letters the imperial ambassadors keep writing about how Henry... Just couldn't get enough of Mary's household. He was there all the time. He was visiting constantly. And they're kind of bewildered by why suddenly her household is so popular. And Latimer's still alive. And the other thing is, if Catherine was so unattractive, with all of the women at court to choose from, why would Henry, who was very picky, choose her? You know? (laughs) Makes no sense.
1: So after Latimer died, February 1543, and Henry broached the topic, saying no to the king wasn't really an option, was it? She was horrified. She's
0: quoted as saying she'd rather be his mistress than his wife. I mean, her sister Anne had been with Catherine Howard up until the time she was executed. You know, she knew the background of all this. She knew what had happened to those last five wives. So the idea of marrying him horrified her. However, it would advance her family. It would advance the Reformed religion because by now she was pretty well sold on the Reformation. So great pressure was brought to bear and there was really no place for her to go. She had to do it. So she did.
1: So she did. And the couple were married in the Queen's Closet at Hampton Court on the 12th of July, 1543. Very small wedding, as most of Henry's were. And we have a portrait of her, probably from around this time, at the National Portrait Gallery. Now, this was previously thought to be Lady Jane Grey, but you identified it as Catherine Parr, and it's your work that made the National Portrait Gallery relabel the portrait. So tell us about it.
0: Reluctantly! (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm persona non grata at the National Portrait Gallery. No, again, it was a portrait that was historically identified as Catherine Parr, that was owned by her cousin Maud's family. Maud had been her lady-in-waiting, so it was a gift to her. The things that make it Catherine Parr are the crown brooch that she's wearing, which was probably a wedding gift from Henry, and the cameo girdle that she's wearing, which are on her jewel list. The brooch is only on her jewel list and none of the other queens. And it's interesting because it is the first full-length panel portrait of an English woman that had been commissioned. Catherine Parr was a lot of firsts, and this was one of them. It's a cracking portrait.
1: (laughs) It is. I mean, she is very attractive in it. She's wearing sort of the most fashionable clothes you could imagine, and she has this tiny little waist.
0: She was a fashionista at court. She was very into fashion. If you look at her chamber accounts, the fabric she ordered, the different styles she ordered, all of her portraits have different stylings on the gowns. She was into jewels. She loved diamonds. Diamonds were big. Crimson was her favorite color. She was a lead in the fashion of the court.
1: And you've also been doing some research recently on miniatures, haven't you, and how they influence the politics of the Tudor court. Do they have anything to tell us about Catherine Park?
0: Oh, a lot. Catherine of Aragon was the first one to use miniatures as a political tool. She had miniatures of herself and Henry passed out to her ladies-in-waiting and her supporters at the same time Anne Boleyn was having her miniatures done and passed out at court. And when Henry died. Catherine parr assumed she would be made regent which she was not and she had masses i think in the chamber records there are at least two orders of dozen miniatures for twin miniatures of herself and the prince of wales who is now edward vi as a way to politicize her importance her influence especially with him And they were passed out all over court, like campaign badges. Unfortunately, it didn't work for Catherine of Aragon, and it didn't work for Catherine Parr. But it was a platform by which they tried to reinforce their influence at court. Portraiture was really big for Catherine Parr as a statement of status and authority.
1: Do any of those miniatures survive, or do we only know about them through textual references?
0: The one that survives is at Sudley Castle, painted by Margaret Holtzweather. It was painted the year she was regent. And it's very interesting because it's actually a double portrait. It's of her, but she's wearing a brooch that has an H for Henry and a little enamel portrait of the king under the H. So by presenting her worn jewelry, referencing the king she's again stating her authority as queen
1: okay tristan you got 50 seconds go right so dan's given me a few seconds to sell the ancients podcast what is the ancients i hear you say well it's like dan's show except just ancient history we've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries this seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word.
0: wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I want to go back to what you were saying also about two things, accounts and mothering. But first of all, accounts, you've used a lot of sort of records of her expenses to learn about her character. You mentioned Crimson. What else can the accounts tell us? Well, the accounts are
0: like diaries. They're absolutely fascinating. For one thing, they tell us that she had a pet spaniel named Rig that she adored, and she kept his collar, his red velvet collar, in her jewel case till she died. She had a parrot. She was very conscious of hygiene. She had a lead bathtub. She took milk bath. She had breath mints in a little box she carried with her. She had scented oils. She loved shoes. She ordered an enormous amount of shoes. They tell us so much personal little details like that. And they tell us about Henry, because apparently Henry had a very sensitive sense of smell. And the morning after the wedding night, there are orders to go out for sweet herbs, sweet smelling branches, all of this stuff to make the chamber pleasant to smell. So that was interesting.
1: Yes, that must have been trying for Henry when that ulcer was quite so whiffy.
0: Yeah, well, there was a kitchen under the bedroom. And of course, he had all the separating sores on his legs and all this. So not pleasant.
1: One of the details from your book that stuck in my mind was that Catherine had a black silk nightgown. I mean, I think that just gives a completely different image of her than the dowdy old nursemaid. She had a
0: penoir. She had a nightgown and a penoir. Yes, Henry obviously liked black silk nightgowns because Anne Boleyn had one, Catherine Parr had one, so I'm sure it was to please him.
1: And Anne, Catherine's sister, could have said, you know, one thing he really liked with Anne Boleyn.
0: Absolutely. She had Anne by her side to say, well, this is what he likes. And believe me, this is what he doesn't like. So, yeah, that was quite useful.
1: Can we also learn from her accounts or her patronage how she was entertained?
0: She entertained lavishly. She loved to dance. She loved music. The imperial ambassadors talk about she was an interesting conversationalist. They watched her dance. They say how graceful she was. She was beautifully attired, loaded with diamonds. She had chamber musicians, the Bassano family, from whom I am descended. And the younger of the five brothers, Baptista Bassano, taught Princess Elizabeth the Lute and had a daughter, Amelia, who has been identified as Shakespeare's Dark Lady. So there was a direct connection to Catherine's chamber. Catherine also had players who put on plays for her. I mean, she loved entertainment. She wrote poetry, I believe. Her brother did. Thomas Seymour did. It was a thing you did. So, yeah, her court, it's been made to sound like it was Sunday school every morning. But it was more than that.
1: And once again, she had become a stepmother. Yeah. What do we know about her relationship with the royal children?
0: She worked really hard to have good relationships with the three of them. Mary became part of her chamber. They were so close, they were writing letters on the same piece of paper. With Edward, she exchanged letters with him. She talked about his education to him, how he was doing with his lessons. He ended up calling her his most beloved mother. With Elizabeth, like Margaret Neville, really became her daughter. She loved Elizabeth, and Elizabeth loved her. And they had a very close relationship, which between the ages of 8 and 15, Elizabeth, basically, she was Elizabeth's mother. And she was a role model for how Elizabeth later behaved as queen. So that was important.
1: And we open by talking about this misconception that Catherine was to Henry only a sort of nursemaid. What do we know about their marriage?
0: Well, at the beginning, it must have been like walking on a tightrope for Catherine because she knew what the past was. Henry had a habit of indulging his favorites to the point where they got overconfident. I mean, you can look at Woolsey and Cromwell and Anne Boleyn Everybody got overconfident because they thought they had the king wrapped around their little finger. Well, he gave Catherine free reign. She worked on the vernacular literature of the Reformation. She had all of this patronage for the Renaissance, the music, the art, all of this. She was writing books. She was doing all of these things. And so I think gradually she relaxed. And in 1546, she came up against a wall, but she felt it was a religious mission to push the Reformation. She'd been sold that as the reason for the marriage. God has chosen you to be queen. Get in there and establish the Reformation. So I think gradually she came to enjoy the exercise of power, which you would do at the beginning.
1: Yes, and that Henry trusted her is testified to the fact that he allowed her to do that by becoming regent general when he went to fight in France. How did she behave during her tenure as regent? She
0: flourished. She was dealing with supplying troops and munitions, mutinous gypsies, pacifying Frenchmen living in England who were all upset, she was here, there, and everywhere. And she also was made guardian of Henry's three children during that time. And importantly, she was the one that pressured him into putting Mary and Elizabeth back into the line of succession. So that had major consequences.
1: Yes. So they went back into the line of succession in 1544. And actually, the other thing to ask about the nature of their marriage, which, you know, we can only speculate about really, but This is Catherine's third marriage. You suggested that maybe her first husband was not interested in women, but it is unusual in the Tudor period that she's got to this stage all these years of marriage, 10 years or so of marriage to Latimer, in the end, three-plus years to Henry, and she doesn't become pregnant until her fourth marriage. We don't know. She may have become
0: pregnant when she was married to Latimer And didn't have surviving children. There's no record of it. Henry seemed to think that she would be able to produce a child. So it is possible that she had been pregnant in the past. But, of course, that could have been cockeyed optimism on Henry's part. But obviously, she was able to get pregnant because she did eventually. So it may just be that she had very bad luck with her three husbands.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a good corrective, of course, she may well have had miscarriages, she may well have had children who died, and we just don't know. You mentioned that she was interested in the Reformation. I mean, one word that we use for this period, for those who are kind of proto-Protestants are evangelicals. Has she become an evangelical thoroughly by this point, do you think?
0: Absolutely. She was probably the leading evangelical at court while she was queen. And as I mentioned, she and Cranmer were involved in creating this body of vernacular literature to support the Reformation. She was not only writing, she was a patron of a project to translate Erasmus's paraphrases on the New Testament into English. And this was a massive project. She talked Mary into translating one of the books of the New Testament. She translated one. She not only funded it, she chose the translator, she oversaw it. And after it was done, which was the reign of Edward VI, the next reign, it was ordered to be put in all the churches in England. So that was a big deal.
1: I mean, that's huge. She herself translated one of the chapters, and Mary translated one of the chapters.
0: Yeah, and Mary condemned it then. When Mary became queen, it became far too radical. So it was condemned.
1: How interesting. And this is an indication of her publishing career, really, her writing career. Tell us about what she wrote and published.
0: Well, in 1544, her chaplain, George Day, who was Bishop of Chichester, encouraged her to translate the Psalms or Prayers from Latin into English, which she did, but it was published anonymously. Then the next year, She wrote Prayers or Meditations, which was an English transcription of Thomas A. Kempis, The Imitation of Christ. And she added five prayers to the end of it, which came from different sources, but she had tweaked them. And she was so proud of the Psalms or Prayers, the first book, that she had a portrait painted holding the book, which is an interesting piece of work. And then her third book, Lamentation of a Sinner, which is the first book by an English woman published under her own name, was published after Henry died because it moved on from Lutheranism and was flirting with Calvinism. It was getting increasingly radical. So it was not published during Henry's lifetime. But yeah, she was very into this vernacular literature in support of the Church of England.
1: It's amazing and so interesting that although Lamentation of a Sinner wasn't published until Henry had died, it's clearly what she's thinking about in that last year or so of his life.
0: Well, an interesting point for that book is that although it is written by a woman, it's under her name, the voice that narrates it is masculine. It's a bi-gendered book, which combines the male and female voice, which, as queen, this again modeled for Princess Elizabeth a bigendered approach to the queenhood. She's a woman, but she has the stomach of a man. So that's an interesting aspect of it as well.
1: Yes, because she is demonstrating queenship to the young Princess Elizabeth and is one of the sort of paramount examples of role modeling that Elizabeth would have seen in her young years. Now, on matters of religion, let's talk about what happened in the summer of 1546, some point in 1546 at least, and how close you think Catherine came to going the way of some of Henry's other wives to the block.
0: Well, given Henry's quixotic nature, it was always a possibility. But her influence with Henry, and as importantly, her influence with Edward, who was the heir, made her an enemy of the conservatives at court. They were worried that would Henry die, she would become regent, and she was a committed evangelical. This was not what they wanted, because they felt that if they could control the young Edward, who was a child, they could bring the country back to the true religion. So they mounted a plot against her, and this was Stephen Gardner, Thomas Rothsley, the Duke of Norfolk, and William Paget. First, they were going to accuse her of using witchcraft to make herself barren because she had had no children. Then they decided heresy was a better fit. So they tried to convince Henry that she was a heretic. And she had been arguing religion with Henry, and he lost his temper. He was not in a good mood. His leg hurt. And he made some remark to Gardner that it was a good day when, you know, a man had to listen to his wife contradict him. So pushing on that sore spot, they got him to sign a warrant for her arrest. And fortunately, Catherine now had friends at court. And the scuttlebutt was it was her doctor that told her this warrant had been signed. So she knew that if she could keep Henry near her, that would save her. She took to her bed. She said her life was in danger, which it was. She was terribly ill. She was dying. She carried on. Henry rushed to her bedside. And she apologized if she had upset him. She was afraid she had, you know, made him lose his temper. And she'd only argued with him to take his mind off his pain. And so, oh, okay, well, that's fine, honey. You know, we'll go on from here. And then the next day, they were in the garden together and Rothsley, thinking that he had her now, came in with the guards to arrest her. And Henry cursed him out. And she saved her life, basically.
1: And she did the thing that no other one of Henry's queens who was in that position was able to do was that she saw Henry. Yes. Anne Boleyn, Catherine Howard, they just didn't get to see Henry at that time and put their case, but Catherine Parr did. Yes. Well, she had
0: all of those precedents to learn from. That's what saved her.
1: Now, in your work, you've made a comparison between the speech that we have Catherine recorded a saying, according to John Fox, at least, in his Acts and Monuments or Book of Martyrs, and the speech that Shakespeare gave to Caterina in The Taming of the Shrew. Talk me through this. One connection
0: is Baptista de Bassano was in Catherine Parr's household, and if his daughter is the dark lady, Amelia Lanier, there was a direct connection between what was going on in Catherine's household and Shakespeare. But, also, it was in John Fox's book. And if you read the submission speech that Catherine supposedly made to Henry during this period and the speech that Caterina makes to Petruchio, always remembering Caterina's father's name, Battista, in the play, they're very similar. The ideas that a woman is so simple and she must lay her hand under her husband's foot, all of this is very similar Shakespeare's is the better speech, but you can see that there might be a connection between the two. And the heroine is Katharina.
1: Yes, intriguing, really intriguing. Now, it always seems strange to me that given that Henry had made Catherine regent of England whilst he was absent in France, he didn't give her a role as regent in the governing of Edward after his death. Why do you think this was?
0: Well, I think Henry always intended to come back from France. So leaving Catherine as regent for three, four, five months, that was acceptable. Henry didn't trust women to rule, which is why he was not happy with Mary being the heir. And the idea of leaving a woman, also what happened in 1546, that may have shaken his faith in her abilities to rule. But leaving a woman in control for as long as she would need to be in control with Edward as a child, he wasn't going to do that. He was going to leave it to the men.
1: Yes, that's interesting. And so he's taking Catherine out of the role of regent, if he even considered it, which, as you say, he may not even have done so if he was so opposed to female rule. At the same time, the 1546 incident made sure that he took out Bishop Gardiner as well.
0: Exactly. Gardiner's sitting in the tower could watch all of those evangelicals killing each other off over the next four or five years. As I said, I think he must have thought God was definitely on his side because the Duke of Somerset got rid of Thomas Seymour and then the Duke of Somerset was gotten rid of by John Dudley and then John Dudley was gotten rid of. I mean, they were gone.
1: Let's put ourselves back in early 1547. Henry VIII dies on the 28th of January And then within a few months, how many months is a point for debate perhaps, but Catherine for once in her whole pragmatic life appears to act completely recklessly, marrying Sir Thomas Seymour without the knowledge of the King Edward, without the knowledge of the council, with unseemly haste, what do you make of it?
0: Well, she married her first husband to please her mother and to protect par interests in the North. She married her second husband basically to have a home. And she married Henry because she had no choice. So here is a man she's loved for five years banging on her chamber door Henry, thank God, is gone. I mean, was it wise? No. Was it human? Yes. You know, the relief of having Henry gone must have been overwhelming. And I think she was reckless. Yes. But I think it's understandable.
1: Now, we have Catherine and Seymour living together as man and wife. And Catherine has continued her mothering role of the Princess Elizabeth, not known as Princess, of course, at this time, the Lady Elizabeth. Yeah. And there is, of course, this great scandal. How complicit do you think Catherine was in Seymour's harassment of the teenage princess Elizabeth? I
0: don't really see it as harassment in a way. I mean, Catherine loved Elizabeth. She would not have done anything that would have endangered her knowing what had happened to her mother, knowing all of the ins and outs by now of what was going on in court. All of the instances that are recorded about them tickling Elizabeth to wake her up and cutting up her morning clothes and all of this, I think a lot of this came from just the giddy relief of Henry being gone. This was the most freedom Elizabeth had ever had. Catherine was finally now shut of this guy who could cut off her head at will And I think Catherine was trying to make it into a normal family life. Thomas Seymour obviously wanted all of the heirs to the throne to love him and adore him, but he loved Catherine. And all of the instances that talk about his relationship and the fact that Catherine considered marrying him when Latimer was dying, I don't know whether he at that moment was considering well gee if Catherine dies maybe I'll marry Elizabeth but again it was reckless it was overboard and Ann Stanhope and a lot of people at court were trying to dig up as much dirt as they could because of this civil war going on but Seymour he was arrogant I don't really think he was trying to groom Elizabeth that's my opinion from reading the testimony
1: One very interesting detail you mentioned there was that the dress that Seymour cut that Elizabeth was wearing and Catherine was holding her was a mourning dress. Now, I've never come across that detail before, and it does rather change the perspective.
0: Yeah, it was, you know, happy days are here again. Let us not have mourning in our household. Let us only have joy. It was a symbolic thing because Elizabeth would have been wearing mourning
1: for her father. Interesting. Okay. The plot thickens. Now, if we go forward in time, we get to 1548. And finally, at 36 years old, for the first time that we know of in her fourth marriage, Catherine became pregnant. But then, great tragedy. Tell us what happened.
0: Well, she got blood poisoning, corporal fever, from her doctor's dirty hands. She gave birth to a daughter who was eventually named Mary for Princess Mary. And five days later, she died. It was tragic. After all, she'd managed to get through. And Elizabeth had been left back at Cheshunt with the Denny's, Sir Anthony Denny and Cat Ashley's sister. And Lady Jane Grey had gone down to Sudley with Catherine. So she kind of was her in loco parentis for Jane Grey at that moment. Jane was 11. And so she was the chief mourner at Catherine's funeral. And Thomas Seymour just went off the rails after that. There's a letter about how he was a heavy man for the queen. He was in deep mourning for her, which is one reason why I don't think he was grooming Elizabeth in Chelsea. But he started acting like a madman and ended up losing his head for
1: it. So... Tell us, finally, what you think we should make of Catherine Paul?
0: She was an extraordinary woman who was seminal in the line of succession for Mary and Elizabeth. Trinity College, Cambridge owes its foundation to her. She was arguably the first activist queen of the Reformation. She was certainly one of the most important people in the English Renaissance, She patronized Thomas Tallis, the composer, masses of artists. She had three women miniaturists in her household. She wrote literature. She patronized writers. She was just a remarkable woman who has been terribly undervalued by history. And now they've got a new movie they're doing called Firebrand with Michelle Williams, About Catherine Parr. So we've gone from Jolie Richardson to Michelle Williams. We're moving up.
1: Hallelujah, well I look forward to seeing that film That would be great fun Maybe we'll have to get together and talk about it That would be lovely Thank you so much for joining me today Because you have completely rehabilitated her I think for my Not Just the Tudors audience And if people want to find out more They need to go and pick up a copy Either of Catherine Parr, The Making of a Queen Which is the one that has the biographies of her siblings in as well Or Catherine Parr, Henry VIII's Last Love Which are both by Susan E James and entirely worth your money thank you so much for joining me most
0: welcome it has been a pleasure
1: thank you so much for listening to not just the Tudors from History Hit take a moment if you would to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it including on Spotify it really helps new listeners find the show and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess, and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.